This is The Guardian. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Football Weekly. The knockouts of the Champions League begin and how? Well, not that brilliantly, if we're totally honest. Another pretty flat Spurs performance in Milan, creating not a lot and probably lucky to get away with a 1-0 defeat. Meanwhile, PSG without Kylian Mbappe are not as good as PSG with Kylian Mbappe. Bayern control most of the game, but end up holding on to a 1-0 victory to take back to Munich. Also today, we'll look back on a pretty straightforward Liverpool win in the Merseyside derby and a reflect on the damning verdict against UEFA following the Champions League final. There's an interesting report on referee abuse at grassroots level and we'll ask the Arsenal fans on the panel if we were right to find the weekend's VAR as funny as we did last time out. We celebrate another male player coming out as gay. We find out if Jesse Marsh has updated his LinkedIn. Welcome Neil Warnock back to the dugout and talk about banning haddocks. All that plus your questions. And that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. On the panel today, Philippe Auclair. Bonjour, ça va? Ça va bien, Max. Et toi? Ça va bien. Barry Glendening, hello. Bonjour. And hello, Nikki Bandini. Buongiorno. Buongiorno. <laughs> we should say, Nikki, you're in Phoenix. Uh, you watch the Super Bowl. It is one in the morning. So all, to anyone who complains about recording at 8 a.m., you're a, you're a <laughs> modern day hero. I just thought, Max, I think you were probably up at 3 a.m. in Australia to do Stan Sport together. So I suppose I had to return the favour by being up at 1 a.m. for the podcast. It's very kind of you. Uh, let's start with uh, um, the Spurs defeat uh, at the San Siro against uh, AC Milan. I, I look, Milan won, Nicky. Given their second half chances, do you think they're sort of waking up thinking, God, we could have actually put this to bed this time? Well, it's, it's funny you say that, Max, because I was thinking afterwards, you know, the last time the last time Milan beat a club from North London in the Champions League, which is about 10 years ago, it was Arsenal. And they won that first leg. Was It was 4-0, wasn't it? And then they nearly blew it even after winning 4-0 in the first leg. So, yeah, they might think to themselves, actually, whew, needed a better buffer than that. But I don't know. I, I think you really have to sort of frame it from the perspective of what Milan started the year is that like we talked about this on stand Max I mean they went seven games without a win and during those seven games without a win they had a three game stretch which was lose 3-0 to Inter in the Supercoppa come back to Serie A lose 4-0 to Lazio and then after that lose 5-2 to Sassuolo so they were very much in crisis this is not the the, the team that won the league last season I mean, in many parts it is, but it's it's definitely a, a much less impressive side or has been recently than than that. And they they've really sort of gone into this period of consolidation of like, okay, right, no more having fun, no more of this sort of optimistic way of playing that purely got so much success out of last season. We're gonna change the the formation, we're gonna go to a, a back three, we're gonna make it all about just not conceding a goal first and foremost. So actually, I thought they kind of had the perfect game getting that get that goal so early and being able to then sit in that low block, play play for the counters, play for those wide balls. And um, and yeah, it's true. In the second half, they had two really, really good chances to score a second goal. 
which you know unfortunately fell to Malik Chor, who's a defender and and had a great game I thought by the way so if he didn't score that chance fair enough and Charles de Ketela, who I don't think I've seen a footballer with less confidence than Charles de Ketela seems to have right now so him not being able to hit the target from from three yards out was was no big surprise so some missed opportunity there for certain but I think again this is a team that two weeks ago was was being absolutely pilloried for one of the most having finally not lost by five goals they still lost the derby to Inter 1-0 in the league and it was such a miserable performance such a desperate abject performance it, if you told me then that they could win this game at all I would have not believed you Chris says uh, is there a way that Barry can put Daniel Levy in touch with Beaver the goalie I, I don't know that <laughs> Fraser Force <laughs> Fraser Forster will make it to Hugo's return I, a bit harsh I mean he's let in five goals since he's uh, been stuck in net since Hugo Lloris's injury Barry but I don't think any of them have been his fault. And I thought he was, inc- I thought he made an amazing save in the build up to this goal. I'm staggered that anyone's criticizing Fraser Foster. For anyone who hasn't seen it, there was a long ball down the left, sort of inside left channel. Tio Hernandez out muscled um, Christian Romero, who should have done better to, to sort of knock it inside with his head. He shot from a narrow angle. Fraser Forster got down, saved with his chest. And then Bram Diaz, like, tried to rifle at home from 10 yards. And Forster, who was lying on the ground, somehow elevated himself enough to get an arm up and fingertip it. It was a sensational effort at a save. The ball looped up towards the crossbar, and Bram Diaz had uh, followed it up on his own shot, and, and he just had the quite simple task of nodding it in from a couple of inches out. Certainly wasn't Fraser Forster's fault. Uh, I would be blaming Christian Ranero, and uh, I think Eric Dyer was slightly culpable as well for not getting over quick enough to prevent uh, Hernandez crossing the ball. So, yeah, it seems very harsh. I don't think Fraser Forster has done a thing wrong deputising for Lloris. And Lloris hasn't been playing particularly well this season either. So, uh, no, I'm not having that. I thought Spurs were... Lucky enough to get away with a 1-0. They played quite well, but created very little. And were they had a lot of set pieces, you know, free kicks out wide and corners, but couldn't do much with them. You know, Malik Chow had um, Kulusevsky on a very tight rein. Uh, Son did very little. And I don't understand why Richarlison isn't playing more. I don't know if he's injured or not fully fit, but he's been festering on the bench and... Uh, Seems really odd that he's not getting more starts. Yeah, Jody says um, the game hasn't tweeted before kickoff. The game hasn't been played yet, but why were Tottenham so awful against Milan? And will it get any better under <laughs> Conte? It is hard. I mean, I suppose Nicky, to be fair, and I'm not excluding Philippe, but his he was focusing on the PSG Bayern game. Pape Matassar actually looked really quite good, I thought, Nicky. And I suppose if Spurs fans wanted any sort of crumbs of encouragement, him and Skip in central midfield was impressive even though Spurs didn't create anything, but their midfield don't really create anything. Yeah, I mean, in many ways, it was all the players who weren't supposed to impress us who did impress us. I agree with Baz. I thought Forster's sort of second stop in that, in that um, what ended up being the goal was one of the best saves I've ever seen that didn't matter. You know, it was one of the best saves I've ever seen that is completely meaningless because he arrives and heads at home anyway, but it was still an incredible save. Um, and I thought Saar was, was really, really solid in this game. He was 
in control of that midfield for a lot of it and doing the things that at times Milan's central midfield couldn't, frankly. I think there's sort of two sides to that. And this, you know, it's not a criticism of him because I think he might have been Tottenham's best player, honestly. I think if I was to pick a man of the match Tottenham, it probably would be Saar. But I think you can say that and say he had like a, a very tidy game and say that it's still true that looking at that midfield, the one player who they were screaming for was the one who of course is injured which is Ben Tanker because Ben Tanker is the player who can turn and can make those transitions and and actually make it something more than just a a defensive screen so they were missing um, something in that midfield even though the two players who came in did pretty well but it's a, a good point that, that Baz raises you know why isn't Richarlison starting more when he was on the pitch when he came on it was him who had that bit of muscle that little bit of strength and positioning to to get the, the, was it a chest down or a head down? I can't remember anymore, but certainly to, to get him, he was the one who won the ball, held it up and laid it off for, for Saar to get a shot from the edge of the box, which wasn't much of a chance, frankly, but it was as close as Tottenham came to having a chance in the whole game. I, I'm not sure I can agree with Baz. They played well. I thought they were crap. I'm sorry. I didn't say well. I said well enough. I mean, I think actually what we can really say is these are not, Philippe, two of the 16 best teams in Europe. I, I think this is... Uh... The first thing, perhaps one of the only things I was going to say, because I was really, really struggling with my feet for this game. And apparently I didn't miss much. It was freezing every 15 seconds and then carrying on. Um, but you didn't have the feeling really from what I saw that uh, the little that I saw that you had two contenders for actually even going deep in the competition. We're not even reaching the final or, or winning it, uh, if anything. Um, on, on Richarlison, the question I would put to you is that who would make way for Richarlison if Son. Conte... Son, okay, Son makes way. But I think Richarlison plays down the middle, right? That's that's where he's at his best, where he plays for Brazil. And, you, you know, you don't stop him for Kane. But I agree, he adds an energy that, that they don't have. And Son is just out, so wildly out of form. that. Well, here's, here's a radical idea that Antonio Conti is not fond of, but he could change his formation. No yes. way. He, he, could, <laughs> he could try something different, um, but it's not really his style, no. is it? I, I also wanted to point out, does anyone else think that Christian Romero is unnecessarily violent? I mean, everyone sort of loves him because he's sort of got this swagger. But I mean, he almost broke Tonali's ankles twice yesterday. And, and, and like, he got sent off in the previous game. He goes in for wild challenges. He's clearly a good player. But like, it's sort of unsustainable sort of trying to murder players on a regular basis, Philippe. I, I, was, I was looking, Max, at the, at the list of the recent games that Romero has been playing. And I think of the last uh, 10 or 11, there's only one game in which he hasn't been cautioned or sent off. I mean, that... that and, and and I think in some ways he's been lucky in some of those games not to have a second caution, by the way. I mean, he wasn't was it that brutal, Nicky, beforehand? Or is he even more before he joined Tottenham? He was always a very aggressive player, and whether it's sort of hit a new level, maybe. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I don't watch Tottenham every week. You know, I, I probably saw him, saw him more when when he was playing in in Serie A. I, I agree with that. The the challenge on Tonali was horrendous in this game, and and I wonder if there was a bit with him of of sort of frustration of of feeling that things are getting away from him. And because it's it's funny that that moment at the beginning that was already talked about when Hernandez Baz was talking about when Hernandez barges him off the ball, it it, it actually felt. On the other side of it, you know, Teo has been one of Milan's worst players through January. He, he really sort of came back from the World Cup in such a, a funk. And, and to be honest with you, I, I almost feel like I've seen this with a few members of that French team that, that didn't win the World Cup. They've come back to their club sides and it's like they're, they're carrying this hangover with them. And it was only the last game against Torino. I thought, OK, that's a bit more like Teo. He looks a bit like he's back to himself again. And, and I just... 
I don't know, maybe I'm over sort of romanticizing this moment of the game, but that moment of of being able to do it against, you know, someone against someone who you, you played against the World Cup and just thinking, all right, can you can you sort of reclaim some power here a little bit? I don't know. I wondered if that uh, maybe uh, felt good for Teo. Right, well, speaking of uh, uh, French players who who didn't win the World Cup but did quite well in the World Cup final, Kylian Mbappe, Philippe, sort of changed, <laughs> changed this game. It was an interesting game, wasn't it, PSG Bayern? It took a while to get going. Bayern sort of dominated. And you sort of think they'll be slightly frustrated that, that eventually they had to hold on. And, and you sort of think... Yeah, Mbappe's fit. If he's fully fit in the next leg, it's still wide open. This game, I, I would, I would entirely agree with you. It was, it was a very odd game. First of all, it felt like it was played. If you, if you cut the sound off, you would have thought it was played in the Allianz Arena, because the domination was of Bayern was the domination of a team playing at home, full of confidence, against a team which had come, you know, dropping back quite considerably, not pressing. Even though it's true that with uh, the kind of players that uh, PSG has up front, uh, you won't have much pressing in that area. Um, and it's only when you switch the sound off, you realize, oh, every time Bayern had the uh, had the ball, there were whistles and boos and everything. But apart from that, uh, PSG were totally inexistent and were totally, um, I mean, in, in midfield, I mean, they weren't there. They were totally dominated. And I mean, Bayern only scored one goal and on a pretty bad mistake by Donnarumma, it must be said, because if Forster's save was splendid, I mean, the way Donnarumma managed to let that ball squirt, squirm, squirt, squirm, which one? Squirt. squirt. Under his body. I'd go squirm, squirm. yeah. Okay, squirm. Yeah. Squirt, not baby not. Uh, squirm <laughs> under his body was pretty shocking. Uh, even though it was a really good goal by, by Coman, I mean, the, the piece of skill, the way he took the ball was excellent. And he was, by the way, absolutely terrific up until Nagelsmann decided to substitute him. And then, as you said, it changed. And it changed not just because of Kylian Mbappe, but also because Vitinha came on. And I think that made a huge difference. But immediately with, with Kylian Mbappe, who was used the first five, ten minutes perhaps, just to feel himself, making sure that his body was okay. And then suddenly we saw you know, the burst of space we saw all the troubles he could bring to that Bayern team, which looked actually quite panicky at times. There was this goal which was chalked off for a very marginal offside after a splendid run by, by Nuno Mendes uh, on, on the left-hand side. And, you know, quite a few chances at, towards the end of the game, despite the fact that Neymar, I was going to say, looked his age, his real age, not the uh, age on his passport, but the age of somebody who spends a lot of time doing things of the pitch, which maybe we should be talking about because it's very funny what's going on at the moment. Oh, well, tell us now. Tell us now. Why not? What, no time like the present. What's Neymar up to? Well, because uh, Kylian Mbappe uh, was uh, questioned after the game and he was asked the question, do, do you think you can do it in Munich? And he said, provided everyone eats well and sleeps well, I think we can do it. And this came uh, on the heels of a, a few stories which have been published in the French press about uh, the parties that Neymar is holding in his uh, luxury home in the French banlieue. But that's not the kind of banlieue that you think of, obviously. Right. Uh, it's more for Londoners and people who know London, it's a bit more Richmond or Barnes than okay. Tower Hamlets. Let's Got put it, it that way. Is it Got it. Okay. God, if you're some sort of if you're some sort of middle-aged fan, you know, if you're some family who buy a big old pad in Richmond and then the person next door is Neymar having parties every day, God, you'd You'd, you'd get annoyed, wouldn't you? Banging on the wall. I mean, obviously it's probably not, probably detached house, isn't it? But going around and pressing the buzzer 
Well, the thing is that the neighbors, the neighbors do that, and that's what the story is about. And they keep calling the police, and <laughs> and the mayor of Bougival said, "I've had enough of it." Uh, Bougival being the that suburb, and he said, "I've had enough of it." But what can we do? You know, if we're going to find him, one hundred thirty-five euros, which is the statutory fine for this kind of thing, he's just going to give us. You know, it doesn't matter for him. And so they're they're open arms and they're wondering, well, what what can we do to stop him having all these parties? And so Mbappe obviously had read that, and that was the first comment he made after the game. Uh, but coming back to 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 uh, to PSG, in fact, they finished the game on a high when they were actually playing with the kind of team that you you were seeing at the beginning of the season, which was really, really stable. You knew exactly what was going on. Donnarumma, okay, was there. Then you had three at the back with, by the way, Sergio Ramos was excellent yesterday. He night. was great, I mean, wasn't he? He, he, was, he was superb. And then you had on the, on the as wingbacks, Hakimi and Nuno Mendes. That's a pretty terrifying thing. And then Verratti and Vitinha really working well together. And then the three up front, and you put, you look at that, you think, my goodness, this is a pretty serious team. But because of injuries, because there's this World Cup hangover thing, which is affecting a lot of people, uh, including Neymar, by the way, he hasn't been quite able over the past few weeks to put, you know, to get the kind of performances that we were seeing from the Parisians at the beginning of the season. So it could be that, with Mbappe coming back into the team, with Vitinha as well being back in, in the starting eleven, we're going to see the PSG that we saw at the beginning of the season. And that PSG can certainly cause a lot of trouble to Bayern, and it's certainly far, far from over. Tom says, did Barry know that Daily Blint was at Bayern Munich from someone who did not know that this himself? Did you know this? I did, yes. And I say I didn't. And then I was thinking, I didn't when he when I saw that tweet, and that was after the game. Did he play? Play the don't tell me you didn't play the whole game or something. And I was there working on the game, not seeing Danny Blint. Who knows? Um, tonight it's Club Brugge, Benfica, Dortmund, Chelsea. We'll talk about them on tomorrow's pod. Um, Andrew says, if Napoli win the Champions League, will you replace your Subaru with a Fiat Panda? Thank you, Andrew. These questions keep on coming, and that'll do for part one. Part two, we'll uh, look back at Liverpool's win in the Merseyside Derby on Monday night. Finding your perfect home was hard. But thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. In a couple of weeks, we're going to do a special on disability and football, on all areas of it, accessibility, playing, working in the game, on the good things that clubs are doing and what more needs to be done. As with other specials, we'd love to hear from you. On your experiences, they make a huge difference to these pods. The email address is footballweeklyattheguardian.com, footballweeklyattheguardian.com. Let's talk about the Merseyside derby and do a bit of Sean Dyche and Everton. Marva Creel came on uh, to talk about the last crisis that Everton were in. I mean, they're sort of permanently in a crisis, I guess, but I, I can't remember if Lampard was still there or if he'd gone, Marvel, when we last spoke to you. I can't remember either. I think he had just <laughs> gone. I think like the day right. before he had just gone. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, let, let's talk about the, the Moses Derby first. I mean, I guess 
Did you come into this game with a kind of weird sense of confidence after what had happened against Arsenal? I don't think many of them fans are ever that confident at Anfield, given our track record over the last 20 years. But I do think we probably expected a bit more than what we got, just because the Arsenal performance was so much more than we thought it would be. Um, so we thought maybe there was a chance, but I don't think anyone was particularly expecting a win, let's say. Yeah, I, I I, don't know how you felt about the first goal. I mean, that is fine margins, isn't it? Tarkovsky hitting the post and then that sudden breakaway and then some, somebody accidentally leaning on Jordan Pickford's controller. So he just went for a run at the, the wrong time. <laughs> Yeah, it felt very Everton at Anfield, that whole goal. Maybe the only thing that didn't feel very Everton at Anfield was actually hitting the post, but <laughs> the the reaction afterwards. And I think the manner to concede that goal, I think, set us up. I'm not going to blame it all on that because obviously they did have most possession even up to that. Um, I don't think they were creating loads up until that moment, but definitely, you know, were, were the better team even until that point. And then I think after that point, it was just all them um, and it was very comfortable for them. Philippe, Liverpool sort of did generally dominate, right? They're nine points off fourth with a game in hand on, on Newcastle. Are you expecting, could you could you see from their point of view like a barnstorming run or something that could trouble the top four, given that Newcastle are stuttering a bit, Spurs we've already talked about, perennially hopeless, and, and then the teams in between them are sort of don't have the experience, perhaps? Yes, you could perhaps see that, provided that there were a number of teams um, uh, having problems, because, you know, we shouldn't take the others, the smaller ones, out of the equation at all. I, you know, I wouldn't take Brentford out of it. I wouldn't take Brighton out of it. I would even take Fulham out of it. But what we saw, which looked for me a bit more than an upping of the performance because it's a derby against Everton, was actually quite promising uh, from, from Liverpool. And what also was very promising is the fact that Diogo Jota is back. Virgil van Dijk will be back very, very soon. So he will soon have an almost complete squad. And then there's Luis Diaz, of course, to come back a little bit later. And the performance, I wouldn't say it was, you know, the cracking, all singing, all dancing performance like by the Liverpool of old. But there were a number of things which I think Jurgen Klopp would have been absolutely delighted with. Because uh, I don't know what Marvel thinks about it. Because if I compare it to the performance against against Arsenal... I don't think that Everton played necessarily that much more badly or that much better in in the games, more than that the opposition was not quite on the same level in terms of especially physical engagement, all these 50-50s, which, is, which was a little bit unexpected to see this Liverpool midfield, with Fabinho back, by the way, which makes a big difference, being able to actually out-muscle you know, a midfield in which you've got players like Onana and Ducouré who were immense against Arsenal, but couldn't repeat that. So from a Liverpool point of view, I thought that was extremely pleasing. But I would imagine that it's more the Champions League I'm thinking of. I'm thinking if they were to play, you know, Real Madrid, I think, should be very, very, very worried about that team. This is the, the competition in which they've got a real chance. And when you see the way that um, Salah was back to almost his best, Darwin Nunez was was superb. There was uh, signs that Gakpo is finding, you know, his feet and his place in the pitch, which was not obvious. You know, as everybody knows, he used to play most on the left-hand side with, with PSV. Now he's playing more down the middle, playing in a kind of more withdrawn kind of Firmino role. And he seems to be quite good in this. Then there was the young Bajetic, who, who was simply magnificent, um, you know, 18 years of age. 
and and bossing the game. And everywhere you look, you thought, oh, gosh almighty, this is a much, much, much better Liverpool than we've seen almost all season. Um, so, yes, they can certainly put a run of results together. Uh, but I would imagine that the Champions League is probably the competition in which people should be wary of them. Um, Marvel, how have you felt about Sean Dyche coming in and kind of all the stereotype, you know, all the classic things you wanted, like from a, from Sean Dyche arriving and bleep tests. Someone told me they would call beep tests, not bleep tests, but I'm, I'm very much believe it's there's an L in the bleep um, and, you know, no snoods, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I think all of that stuff is is what it is. I don't. I think a lot of it is is often quite hyped up in terms of what it actually leads to. You have a lot of managers who come in and, and complain about fitness, you know, when they start. Um, but I think in terms of that Arsenal game, while I hope it's not an exception to the rule, um, did did show everything that you can do under a Daesh team. Um, it sort of, I think, it felt great. Not only obviously because we needed that win, and not only was it against Arsenal, but it had a kind of feel of a um, peak Moyes team almost where, you know, the the things that you're doing for Everton, are you're, you're fighting constantly. It's not always going to be the prettiest football, but it's a hard place to go. And that's what we need to make Goodison um, into again. I think the thing with uh, last time I was on here, you know, I was talking about the kind of lack of planning from Everton and I don't think anything quite shows a lack of planning just like getting Daesh in and not having the players to field a 4-4-2 formation it's (laughs) it's like it's actually quite unbelievable um and when I saw the Arsenal game I think it was reassuring because he played sort of 4-5-1 and where we do have have a bit of depth is our centre midfielders um and where we have the most talent I would say is our our centre midfielders but then with a 4-5-1 you need your one. And without Calvert-Lewin against Arsenal, um, sorry, against Liverpool, you show the difference between against, you know, Liverpool and Arsenal because in those moments where we did get the ball and, and put it forward against Arsenal, we were just, it allowed us to be on the front foot a bit more because Calvert-Lewin is actually, his hold-up play is actually pretty good and his layoff play actually is very good as well. And you saw, you know, Ellis Sims, I've, I don't want to sort of berate him too much because obviously that's a ridiculous game to come into for your first game in in so long. But um, there were a few moments, even in the first kind of 15 minutes where the ball had come to him um, and he lost it or couldn't quite get it. And it makes a massive difference because if you just have those few little moments, it changes the feel of the game. And we didn't have that against Liverpool. It meant that there was nothing for our three central midfielders to play into. There was nothing for them to do once they got the ball. And then it just became quite sloppy. It came quite... I think everyone's sort of heads went down a bit. But having said that, if Tarkovsky had scored at that moment um, at the back post, then maybe we've got a different game. Yeah, I think we're going to have to really, really find... uh, I don't even want to say plan B because... It's we've tried so many plans, but without Calvert-Lewin, what do we do? And how have we not gotten a replacement for him? We don't even have wingers, really, for Daesh. We've got McNeil. We've got Gray, who he's not the kind of winger that Daesh will want to play on the wing. I think if he plays him, it's going to be more as the one up front. And we're playing a Wobi on the wing where his his best position so far has been in centre mid. So it just shows you, again, our lack of planning for a 4-4-2 situation. Yeah, Ellis Sims was on loan at Sunderland for the first half of the season and did well, scored a few goals, but I don't think he's ready for the step up. And a friend of mine who watches Sunderland week in, week out said he's 
at the moment, he's definitely not ready for the step up. So could we have him back, please? Um, <laughs> <laughs> you just imagine. You could just imagine. You know, Connor Cody yelling, "It's got a stick! It's got a stick!" I've done that Sunday league clogger up front on your old roll, and you just, you know, it's got a stick. You know, and and it and it didn't, and that did make a difference. Finally, Muff, I just wonder if do Everton fans need a sort of mindset change? You know, there is a stop snobbery from a club of a certain size that they don't want someone like Sean Dyche. And so, you know, are you sort of going, it's great now, we'll survive and then we'll go and find someone who plays nice football? Or do you, do you think the fans need to kind of change their mindset and go, look, he was good at Burnley, we should have more better players, more money, like it could, he could actually do something in the long term? Yeah, I, I don't think it's a case of the type of football we play. I think it's the the slight snobbery. I haven't said that, you, you said that. Um, the slight snobbery has come from... Um, maybe it's more our position in the league table. I think it's for Everton fans, it's never particularly about beautiful football. I think if we're getting eighth place and, and playing, you know, tough defensive football, the Goodison crowd won't care. There's a lot of shouts for forward passing at Goodison. But other than that, it, as long as it's going forward in some direction, whether it's hoofed or, you know, beautifully passed on the ground, I don't think the Goodison crowd care. Um, so I, I don't think that that's the thing that would hold back Daesh at all. The thing right now that's looking to hold him back is is that we haven't brought in the resources for him, really. I know he's done kind of a better job with less resources previously, but this relegation battle currently is a very tough one. There's no, no offence to them, but there's no Norwich this year. You know, there's no kind of real set one or two teams that are going down. It's not four teams fighting well fighting against one relegation place it's kind of like seven eight teams fighting against three relegation places and there's no real standout we've all got our kind of our pros and our cons so it's a really really tough battle for him especially without a a striker that he can rely on in terms of fitness um, just to be clear, I wasn't accusing Everton fans of snobbery. <laughs> the supporters of all big clubs. The, the, you know, yeah. it's every true, single true, big club. <laughs> all snobs. Um, Marva, thanks so much for coming on. I appreciate your time. Cheers. Thank you. Uh, Marva Creel there, uh, broadcaster, Everton fan. Uh, while we're on Liverpool, uh, Chris says, do you think the findings after the Paris debacle will actually change anything, given UEFA and the French have requested heavy redaction in the report, indicating they're still trying to protect themselves. So UEFA commissioned an independent report into the scenes before and after the game between Liverpool and Real Madrid in the Champions League final, which saw supporters being tear-gassed by police and being attacked by locals. The report found that UEFA bears primary responsibility for the events that almost led to disaster. Uh, Following the release of the report, Liverpool put out a statement which said last night UEFA published Uh, the report into the failings that we saw firsthand in Paris. It's within this context that we call on UEFA and others at the top of the football regulation pyramid to come together and take positive and transparent action to ensure there are no more near misses. We implore UEFA to fully enact the recommendations as outlined by the panel, no matter how difficult to ensure supporter safety is the number one priority at the heart of every UEFA football fixture. And like Barry's, I remember we were on the radio together the day after and hearing from Liverpool fans talking about like how close that was to a disaster. And this report basically said, you know, if it wasn't for the behaviour of the Liverpool fans, this could have been spectacularly worse. Yeah, I mean, this report and investigation, which took six months, it hasn't told us anything we didn't already know, but obviously it has to be thorough and that's why it took six months. But at the time of Hillsborough, there were no camera phones, there was no rolling... Sky News, you know, reporters outside grounds weren't a thing before games. And so 
we kind of took the word of what we heard, you know, from the police or the government. And this time in Paris, UEFA, the police, and some government ministers squarely tried to lay the blame on Liverpool fans, but we all knew they were lying because we'd seen the, the phone videos we'd heard from the reporters outside the ground. We'd got first-hand accounts from Liverpool fans who were able to back up their claims with video footage or other people's video footage. So we haven't really learned anything new. And it's important to remember that this investigation was commissioned by UEFA. They'd already tried to blame Liverpool fans so the investigation couldn't blame them again because we know the claims were bogus or the accusations and smears were bogus. So the big finger of blame has been pointed at UEFA largely with the police and, and various government officials getting a shooing as well. But the language in it is so damning. Like it's incredibly damning. Whether it will change anything, probably not. Seferin is still going to get re-elected as president, unopposed. Uh, he should resign, I think, but obviously he won't. But it may open the eyes of people at UEFA that this culture of blame shifting that's so prevalent in sporting bodies, governments, whatever, the police, it's not going to really work anymore because everyone has a camera in their pocket. Everyone can provide contrasting footage which torpedoes these claims from from UA for the government and the police out of the water. Yeah, I think uh, we have to insist on the, the language they used in the report. Uh, I've never seen this in a report issued by uh, a sports organization. I, I will just quote one paragraph uh, from the executive su summary, uh, Max. It has been a feature of our investigations that several key stakeholders have not accepted responsibility for their own failures, but have been quick to attribute blame to others. Some have continued to make allegations, in particular against supporters, based upon facts for which there is no evidence. And the whole of the report, which is 200 pages long, you know, is on is that kind of um, language, which is totally unique. And um, so I, I think we should uh, also, by the way, even if huge reservations, almost commend UEFA for doing this. Um, and I know that I'm probably going to uh, uh, shock a few people by saying that, but I can't remember a sports body deciding to put together a commission panel. When you read the names, you thought, this is pretty serious. And then having this being thrown in their faces, which they must have been expecting, now you could be quite you could be thinking that it is quite Machiavellian because in a way that's a means for you if I had to say we're putting our hands up, you know, at least we're doing what we should be doing and we're going to take responsibility for it and we're going to draw the consequences from that. So you might think it's a, it was a very clever thing to to do, especially because of the weight of evidence uh, against the assertions which were casted at uh, at supporters in particular. Which consequences it will have, I don't know. Uh, my main concern is not for UEFA, because I do think they're going to tighten a lot of things there. Uh, but uh, it's more for the French authorities, because uh, the way football is policed in France is absolutely appalling. As any supporter will tell you, especially away supporters, it's absolutely appalling, when they're allowed to travel, that is. And the fact that the police is so heavy-handed 
the fact that the authorities immediately put the blame when there is any incident on the supporters and never look at themselves, I don't think that's going to change. And we've got two major events coming to Paris, which are going to use the Stade de France. And they are, you know, the Rugby World Cup and the Olympic Games. And uh, we can't have the same failures, obviously, happening in that. Um, so, because I actually, the, which is another thing, which it really actually made me uh, uh, stop uh, in my tracks when I was reading the, the, the report. And when they say all the stakeholders interviewed by the panel have agreed that this situation was a near miss, a term used when an event almost turns into a mass fatality catastrophe. And I think with the passage of time, we've quite forgotten how serious this was. So this is, you know, this really, and there have been quite a few, you know, awful things happening at football games uh, in the past year or so, uh, and be it in Africa or in Asia, um, where basically everything, you know, the there were inquiries and panels put in place. It's not going to lead anywhere. At least in this case, let's hope it does lead us somewhere and that UEFA does what it has to do. But again, for the French authorities, I don't think there's going to be the same level of, uh, of responsibility. I fear that. OK, that'll do for part two. Part three will begin by looking ahead to Arsenal versus Manchester City. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Premier League tonight, then first versus second. Uh, Man City go to Arsenal with a chance to jump above them. Uh, Nicky and Philippe, both Arsenal fans. Nicky, how are you feeling about this game? Oh, horrible. Of course, feeling horrible. We've dropped five points in two games. Of course, feel horrible about it. Now they can go top of the league, even if it's, you know, we'll still have the game in hand. Of course, as a fan, it feels very, very anxious. And uh, I don't know, I, 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 maybe Philippe will contradict me on this, but I think a lot of Arsenal fans realistically have, have gone through a lot of this season with at least some some amount of inferiority complex, right? Like even when we were sort of telling ourselves, God, this is really good football. And it has been really good football at times. There's been a lot of, we're not really supposed to be ahead of Man City though, are we? I mean, we aren't, we aren't there. And yeah, there've been times when you start to think, oh, maybe we are, maybe we really could have been. And and indeed, I know some people are already looking at this game and thinking, God, if we just played this in September when everyone was fit, when we were flying, when Jesus was there, would we have been able to beat them? And now we're, we're playing them at the point where we're wobbling. And, you know, that's kind of a silly conversation, actually, because maybe not playing them there, not getting a, a setback then, which we might have had, is what allowed the team to build as much confidence as it had and go on the run it has. So, so you can you can argue that in circles. But, but look, I I think there's lots of reasons that you can equally come to and say Arsenal can be competitive in this game. I mean, um, for starters, you're not going to see Man City park the bus. They're going to come and play an open game, and and actually that's something that Arsenal haven't seen for a few for a few matches and it's not like you suddenly don't have Saka and Odegaard and, and all of that attacking talent is still there. So um, I think it's got the potential to be a, a brilliant game. But as a fan, of course, I'm, I think the uh, official term is breaking it. Yeah, I think that's fair. I, I, and funny, it's interesting, isn't it? You know, Man City, it's us against the world, all these Premier League charges. Mm. Arsenal, it's mm. us against the world because not only are you playing Man City, you're playing the PGMOL <laughs> as well. So, so like both... And the media. And the media, yeah. So like both of you like have this, this sort of burning rage inside you for the head of this game. I wouldn't quite equate the situation that <laughs> Manchester City finds themselves in uh, regarding You're the Premier League investigation right. yeah. with uh, 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 somebody forgetting to draw a line uh, on, on a screen uh, because 
I think he, he was given some 14 or 15 seconds because to, to actually do that because he'd been spending so much time on the previous incident, which was not an incident, that he basically said, well, okay, no, that's fine. Um, so, no, no I, wouldn't quite, I wouldn't quite say that. And I also think that the, the kind of reaction we had to the uh, shenanigans, the VAR shenanigans at the weekend, come from a, from a minority of supporters. That's not really... I think people are more taking it's like a Gallic shrug. You know, these things happen. The problem is more with VAR in general. It's not with Arsenal. There is no plot against Arsenal, blah, blah, blah. No, this is ridiculous. It's interesting you say that because it's interesting you say that because because we had quite a lot of reaction. Not huge, but enough to sort of notice it after Monday's pod where me, Barney, Barry and uh, Noreen Chowdhury sort of found it all quite funny, the amount of referee mistakes. They were just a catalogue and they were just like so ridiculous that it could we could only find it amusing. But like an example of a message from Matt saying, hi, Max, it's a bit odd that you find the huge refereeing mistakes something to laugh at. The so-called biggest league in the world should have the best people controlling the game. Just as bigger organisations have better auditors, the Premier League should have better officials. Drawing incorrect or no lines is unforgivable. There is no accountability, which is why fans are up in arms. These mistakes can potentially cost millions of pounds at the end of the season. Could be the difference between relegation and remaining in the league. There will always be errors on things like tight calls, difficult angles. That's absolutely understandable and to be expected. But to not draw the lines, all the wrong lines, and everyone in Stockley Park missed the fact that just isn't good enough. We were on Monday accused of being out of touch with uh, the fans, with football fans in general, being elitist, smug, of not letting Noz speak, of not really realizing that accountability and refereeing is important for a fully functioning society. I'm not trying to laugh at this because. Uh, hold on. We are football fans. I'm a football fan. You're a football yes. fan. Yeah. Noz is a football fan, and Barney is a football fan. So uh, we're not out of touch. We are fans. And I would like to know where all these great referees are supposed to come from. You know, the reason there are referees make mistakes is because there aren't enough referees. And the reason there aren't enough referees is because referees at grassroots level get abused by paranoid fans for making errors and just give up because it's not worth the hassle. They get abused from players, they get abused from managers, and they get abused from fans. This was all trickles down from the top. So, you know, by all means, get, get in an army of infallible referees who never make mistakes. But I'm, I'm very curious to know where they're going to come from. I, I suppose I think what's quite interesting is whether, you know, if you are paid to watch football and you are, you know, you have that privilege, you experience it in a different way to people who pay a lot of money and travel a long way and then get infuriated by these decisions. And I suspect those fans get annoyed when you just kind of shrug it off going, oh, well, people make mistakes. I mean, I'm not saying you, because I did as well, but people make mistakes. Because you're like, I've invested so much time and money in this thing and these people are just kind of laughing about it. I mean, I, I've got to be honest, that was my reaction. I can't change that. Well, I, I've invested a lot of time and money in, in, in following GEA teams in Ireland. And... Refereeing mistakes never bothered me then, but some of my friends would be absolutely outraged by them. And I mean, referees who make mistakes in GAA matches have been known to end up trussed up in the boots of cars or being beaten up or physically assaulted on the pitch. So, you know, some people take it more seriously than others. I, I, they don't bother me. You know, these things happen. And that's my opinion, and it's not going to change. Nikki. 
I just think it can be both, can't it? Like as a fan, when it's an important situation, which it was obviously for Arsenal, like it's going to eat at you. And, and if Arsenal don't win the league, you're not going to sort of get rid of that feeling of, oh, what if? What if they hadn't got that wrong? And I think you can sort of acknowledge that and also say exactly what Baz has just said. It's it's not a job you're ever going to achieve perfection. You're just not. Like it doesn't matter what punishments you give referees. doesn't matter what sort of incentives you create. There's always going to be mistakes every season no matter what the technology is we've, we've seen that as well with and without technology so on some level you do just kind of have to come to terms it doesn't mean you can't complain about it though complain about it all you like and going back to the original correspondent can we just put this one to bed for once and for all because i hear it all the time no team has ever been relegated because of a bad refereeing decision teams are relegated because they're shit and they've been <laughs> shit over an extended period of time and that is why teams are relegated. There's 20 teams in a, in the Premier League. You only have to be better than three of them. So, you know, put, don't give me that one. Oh, oh, livelihoods are on the line. No, they're not. Though teams have been deprived of uh, titles because of refereeing mistakes. That has happened a uh, number of times. But the thing, it is compounded by the fact that for some Weird reason, perhaps because of the way VAR has been sold to us and technology has sold, been sold to us, is that it, it, one of the aims is to uh, almost eliminate a human error. Uh, and therefore, we've come to have completely unrealistic expectations uh, because it's still human beings doing, making the decisions. But because mm-hmm. the expectations are so high, the reactions are exaggerated. And uh, so it feeds itself. One thing which would certainly make... Uh, I think life a little bit easier for everybody would be if in the Premier League and and actually in the English Football League, we were to adopt uh, the policy that they've got in MLS, by which at the end of each game, the people who are reporting on the game get together, uh, write three questions, which are then put by one journalist to the referees and then shared amongst the, uh, the reporters, which means that if there is an incident in a game that people don't quite understand why did you decide they dismiss your referee? Why did you whistle or not whistle? Well, they do have an answer, and it's led to a pacification of the debate around referring. And it, I think it's something that Pijamo should be looking at, and the Premier League should be looking at, and which would be very easy to implement. And to be honest, I think referees themselves would actually welcome this opportunity to explain themselves. At the moment, they can't, and they, they just hung out to dry. With, with offsides specifically, like the one that Arsenal were, were aggrieved about at the weekend, there is semi-automatic offside technology now being used in Serie A, for instance, and and that will come. Like it's like goal line technology. That's something that is actually absolutely measurable. So eventually, I believe that we will get to the point when, when that's absolute. Although I also saw this morning, and I just could not stop laughing about it. Anyone else saw it? There was a thing shared on Twitter, which was someone who got into an argument with Bing's new artificial intelligence, because the artificial intelligence was adamant that it was 2022 and was being so aggressive about it. <laughs> and this whole conversation goes with, the, with the, this sort of passive aggressive tone from this AI that gets more and more hostile into it, basically shuts down the conversation and says, I can't talk to you anymore because you're a bad faith. You're acting in bad faith towards me. Oh, that'd be great. When the robots screw it all up, it'll be brilliant. I, I, you mentioned, Baz, about grassroots levels refereeing, BBC Sport, uh, released an article discussing the abuse referees get at grassroots level. I made a mini documentary with Chris Sutton exploring it. More than 900 referees in England responded 
to a Five Live questionnaire, 293 said they'd been physically abused by spectators, players, coaches or managers. Some described being punched, headbutted and spat at. A trial of referees wearing body cameras uh, in adults' grassroots football is planned to start this year, which is a good idea and simultaneously incredibly depressing that, uh, you know, that has to happen. Um, uh, moving on, Reese says, how much do you admire Jesse Marsh's decision to take on the Southampton job. After all, he could have settled down on a ranch in Wisconsin, married a nice American girl, raised some cattle and had a nice life. Um, he's, Gary, what do you make of this uh, move to Southampton? It's quite interesting because uh, Nathan Jones replaced a manager I still haven't decided is whether he's any good or not. I still don't know if Nathan Jones is any good or not. And now Nathan Jones is being replaced by a manager whose credentials I'm very still very much up in the air about. He might do okay there. I guess Southampton fans would be fairly underwhelmed because it seems like a like-for-like like replacement, a guy who talks a good game but doesn't necessarily always deliver one, accentuates positives I tend not to be able to see uh, in the wake of uh, getting p a bad result and also comes out with a lot of shit. <laughs> uh, yeah, at midnight last night, said he was still the uh, head coach of Leeds on his LinkedIn. So uh, you've got to update that. So, yeah, fascinating appointment, isn't it? And interesting to see how he goes. Um, while we're on Southampton, they play Grimsby in the FA Cup and Grimsby Town released a statement saying the club have today received confirmation from Southampton that Harry Haddocks will not be permitted at St Mary's for our Emirates FA Cup fifth round. We made initial requests to the Premier League club last week for our supporters to be able to bring the iconic inflatable to our fifth round tie on the 1st of March. This afternoon, our hosts officially declined the request. Southampton have made similar refusals to other clubs throughout this campaign. Who is how many how many similar refusals have they how many clubs have said can I take an inflatable fish to your football match and why are you refusing it? It is not a decision just aimed at Mariners supporters. Any supporters who take Harry Haddocks to the, into the stadium will have them confiscated. What will then Southampton then do with them? We share our supporters' inevitable frustration at this decision. We know you'll support us brilliantly in our FA Cup fifth round tie, the first one since 1996. You do think with all things in the world. They should be allowed to take an inflatable fish uh, into St. Mary's, but perhaps there's a sensible reason for it. That could be Jesse Marsh's first move to allow the inflatable haddocks. Uh, Richard Jolly stat saying, in 1995, Neil Warnock was the manager of Huddersfield and Gigi Buffon played for Palmer. In 2023, Neil Warnock is the manager of Huddersfield and Gigi Buffon is playing for Palmer. So <laughs> how good is that? Uh, welcome back. Neil Warnock, 74, and managing Huddersfield. Uh, Jim says, I just want to say how ecstatic I am that Jacob Yankto has sought to be his authentic self. He obviously feels it's best for him. And if it helps just one other person feel a little less alone for being a gay man who's into football, it's utterly worthwhile. Yeah, the Czech Republic and Sparta Prague midfielder, uh, the highest profile current male player to publicly come out after Josh... Cavallo of Adelaide United, Jack Daniels of Blackpool. He said, like everyone else, I want to live my life with freedom, without fear, without violence, without prejudice, but with love. Nikki, you tweeted about that particular quote, didn't you? Yeah, I, I think that that really says it in such a powerful way. I mean, it's, it's you know, I, I th we're living in like this horrible, gruesome, genuinely costing lives out there for people, culture war at the moment, not just in England, I think all over the world, there seems to be a moment that's happening in which people sort of constantly portray LGBTQ plus people as 
some sort of conspiracy in in a collective sense when actually most of us are just people getting on with our lives and 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 worrying about the same boring rubbish that you lot are, who aren't LGBTQ you lot is a very bad way to phrase it but you know what I mean the problem is that it's stupid but if you're sort of trying to live that normal life but also like there's a significant part of who you are that you cannot acknowledge all of the time that eats away at you that takes away part of of your ability to live freely and and to just get on with everything else because that's something that's just constantly on your shoulders and and I was thinking about this actually because you know Yangta came to to Italy to say he played a, a good chunk of his career in Serie A very well by the way I thought he was a very good player at Sampdoria I was just checking earlier because he came in 2014 and it's only five years before that the Marcello Lippi then the Italy manager, so the manager of Italy at that time, was asked about um, gay players in football. He said he'd never come across one. And he said if there was a gay footballer, he would support them. But he would tell them, don't talk about it in public. He's like, go, go live your life. Just don't talk about it in public. And and that's been the message so sort of often and so commonly. And like, would you honestly expect a straight player to never mention their partner? Like, is that a standard that we hold straight players to? Just play football, never mention your partner. I get that some people go, well, yeah, actually, I don't really want to hear about what they're doing in the bedroom. And I understand that. But actually, take a step back, because Jakob Jankti isn't talking about what he's doing in the bedroom. He just wants to be able to acknowledge that if he has a boyfriend or if he's got a partner or whatever else, he can talk about that as something that is part of his life, because that's all it is. And and that, I think, is is just a really sort of fundamental thing that that LGBTQ plus people are often not allowed. And again, the Italy manager in 2009, I know it's longer ago than I think it is 2009, but it's still not that long ago, feeling able to say that. Like, just don't do it in public. I mean, come on. Like, it's... it's And also sort of saying it in a way that is kind of trying to be supportive, like trying to be kind of yeah, helpful. Absolutely. You know? He thinks he's being supportive. He thinks that's the right thing to say to be supportive. And and yeah, anyway, I'm delighted for Jakob. I think that the way he said that was really, really powerful. And I hope that now he can talk about it exactly as little or as much as he wants to. And that's just the, the load off that he wanted. Yes, um, it's just one thing I would like to to add to this, and um, which has to do with the double standards of, of FIFA, as per usual. Uh, because uh, when Jakob Jankto published his, uh, his, his video, uh, FIFA said, you know, that's wonderful. We support him fully. And what did they do 24 hours later? They gave the Club World Cup to Saudi Arabia, where homosexuality and, in, and actually homosexuals and also transgender people are facing um, very severe repression. And I mean very severe repression. And um, within 24 hours, we saw both sides of FIFA, basically. Yeah, um, I completely agree. I mean, the hypocrisy is... Uh, Adam Crafton, you know, tweeted it brilliantly when he just said, you know... Uh, Adam, who you know, works for The Athletic, is openly gay and, and did some brilliant reporting out in Qatar and spoke to him about that uh, on the radio, saying, you know, today, today I feel gay, you know, today we feel gay, like ripping off Infantino's speech because, yeah, there's words and there's actions and they have to combine if you want to be taken seriously in this or in any space, don't you? Um, uh, moving subject uh, quite dramatically, Ben says, was this the best ever comeback? And his second point is, was there any other way they could have worded it? So the comeback is Wingate and Finchley at home to Bowers and Pitsy in the Ismian League. Bowers and Pitsy were 3-0 up in the 81st minute. And Wingate and Finchley scored in the 82nd, 86th, 94th and 98th minute. And Bowers and Pitsy's Twitter said, full time, 
Bowers throw away a 3-0 lead to lose 4-3 as Wingate score four times in the last eight minutes. No other way to put it than we fucked it. Uh, <laughs> which, you know, admirable honesty. I'd love to hear what the manager said uh, uh, after the game. Uh, Andrew says, have you ever seen a better goal at Cambridge than the one Elliot Bond scored tonight? It was a good goal and Cheltenham beat Cambridge and league. I've always wanted to be back in League Two, is all I can say. Has there ever been a better special guest than when Stars brought Philippe out on Sunday night? Philippe, tell us about it. Well, my friends from Stars, whom I've known for a good many years and um, who, uh, different to me, uh, I've had two platinum records, uh, are touring Europe at the moment. And um, they just rang me and said, you know, Louis, because that's my name. Um, would you like to join us for a song? So I, I joined them for, for a lovely song um, at uh, the beautiful Lafayette venue, absolutely magnificent venue. And uh, I got a big round of applause. And uh, and it, it was wonderful. It was absolutely wonderful to be with my friends on stage. Did you get a bigger applause for that or when you joined me for In Your Back Garden at Glasgow? <laughs> I think it's a close, <laughs> a close round thing, but perhaps I think Back Garden was will remain musically, perhaps my greatest. Was, was yeah, musically, yeah, yeah, musically at least, yes, absolutely. Marvelous, marvelous. But it was, it was wonderful, absolutely wonderful. <laughs> oh, I'm delighted. I'm sad I wasn't there. Uh, anyway, that'll do for today's podcast. Uh, thank you, Philippe. Thank you. Thank you, Barry. Thanks. Thanks, Nikki. Thanks. Uh, Arsenal City tonight so we'll be back tomorrow talking about that one Football Weekly was produced by Silas Gray our executive producer is Danielle Stevens This is The Guardian